Hi, Tim Kask here, faced with a TPK and have no idea what to do? Well, you might have, had you listened to Save or Die. You burst through the door, you find a small room filled with gold and jewels, and a red dragon, he starts to breathe. Save or Die! Hello, everybody. Here we are. Save or die. Number 122. I got it right this time. <laughs> As here I am, the the D20 in our dice bag of, of old school goodness, Crown Royal bag, of course, is me, DM Mike. And with me is the hardly ever used but always appreciated D12, DM Liz. Um. Hello? <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, you are about a 12. Mm. There you go. And hexagons, you know, as a former war gamer, I really like mm. that. Wow. I must say, I do believe the D12 is the best out of all the polyhedrons. So, sure. It's certainly the funnest to say. Dodecahedron. Who doesn't love saying that? Dodecahedron. Yes. It was so cool. It was part of a Doctor Who episode. And, of course, that was our D16 in our dice bag, DM Jim. Did, did you know in DCC there is a D16? Which is why I chose it. Oh, sweet. <laughs> well done, sir. Yep. And we are here to talk about various and sundry things, but mostly an interview with Chris Holmes, the son of... Well, who was that guy again, Liz? He wrote something. Wrote something. Yeah. Only the best version of basic D&D ever. <laughs> J. Eric Holmes, that's right. <laughs> we will be joined by the creator of Boyer and Zurith after the break. But first, is there anything you sounded like you wanted to say something, Jim? Oh, I'm just horrified to realize that Chris Holmes has been at North Texas Con and I didn't know him. Couldn't. Yeah, I know, right? He's been there four years and... It's like, what? Where was he? Like, like the poor guy we is gonna wear we wear a T-shirt that says, him. "I mean, it's like I expect him to have a T-shirt that says, i 'I'm Chris Holmes, son of John Eric Holmes.'" Yeah, we probably said hi to him and never knew who he was. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, last year we were pretty much running around desperately trying to to make one game after another. But the prior two, we could have, should have been able to see him, but. Just goes to show, there's always a surprise at North Texas RPG Con. There, are you happy, Bad Mike? <laughs> <laughs> you never know who you'll run into. I love how you said Bad Mike and, and didn't even bother with Doug Ray because we're all clear Doug doesn't listen to this podcast. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you watch, he'll write in now. 
Yeah, that just to show us. All right, well, we'll get on to our various and sundries, but first, do we have any emails? Get down, get down, get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week, I hope that it's from a female. Oh, man! Actually, today we do not. But no? we do have no, but we do have voicemails. We do ah, have voicemails. People have called us. Woohoo. My <laughs> constant repetition of the number is not in vain. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember three sod. <laughs> My favorite part of Google voicemails is how they provide you with a text version of the voicemail that their software has figured out. <laughs> and it's <laughs> that is never right. <laughs> Hi, Sod. Gerbils, I, you know, Frank licked your last episode. you know. <laughs> what? I have many oxen in my bed. Many, many oxen. Yeah, yeah. Well, A for effort. Maybe they'll get to it one day. Try harder, Google. Yeah, well. But we shall depend on Jim's technical wizardry to play the voicemails. Well, yeah, I'm going to edit them in for real, oh. but, but, but let's see what I can do for us. Okay. Uh, in chronological order, that would be Kojo first. Hey, guys. It's DM Kojo. How's it going? Hey, I'm just calling in for a few things. First, I want to report uh, I had a wonderful time at Gary Con uh, the weekend before last and uh, got to see Jim a little bit, but obviously not as much as I'd like to, being that he's running games, I'm running games. We crossed paths a couple times, but uh, always good to see Jim. Um, Another question, which I honestly can't remember if I sent to you before or RFI, uh, but I'm curious on your take on it, is how do you award experience points when uh, players take out uh, an NPC? So, for example, how many XP is that fourth-level thief that they took out in the bar fight worth um, or, or things of that nature? So, curious about that. And finally... I was curious if you had any suggestions or recommendations for modules to run together uh, that maybe weren't naturally paired up like the the uh, desert ones you previously covered. So just curious if you have any uh, essentially uh, campaigns that you have run in or heard of run where you strung various basic adventures and maybe some advances or not advanced but expert adventures together. Love to hear your thoughts. Keep up your work, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Kojo. Well, who wants to take that? Well, I would say, using his example of the fourth-level thief, um, I would probably, you know, I would baseline, you know, four-hit dice creature. And then I would add or subtract from that baseline number depending on things like, you know, did that thief have any, you know, special magic items that he, he was using in that fight? Um, things like that. Um, it's kind of hard to say definitely what I would do because part of it's going to be the context of, you know, the encounter. Um, 
what if they what if the players just ambushed this guy and you know you know do i even want to reward them for killing this npc based on the manner in which it happened so but if i was going to award in the first place it would probably be i would use you know the level um i would baseline that number of hit die monster and then do wiggle room with the numbers depending on mitigating circumstances and magical items and stuff I don't know, man. I can only tell you what we did back in the day and what I do now. And back in the day, what I would do is figure out what the closest match was in the monster manual, like under the humans, where you've got brigands and all the different types of humans, and I would just grab one of those, and that's that was the XP, closest to whatever they NPC they killed. Uh, you know, obviously I run DCC now, and that's much easier. Uh, but kind of in line with what you said, Liz, where uh, experience points are awarded by the difficulty of the encounter. Nothing to do with the monster. So if the party, you know, if it was easy for them to kill it, they get two XP. If it was a good fight, they get four. If it was like, you know, they almost all got wiped, then maybe six. Done. Yeah. Uh, I come down more on the side of Liz's. You know, I, I basically would just look in the monster section of the book and under men and you know see what was like jim said was equivalent and then but then it was like okay that's the baseline then i'll finagle it if they have magic items or was there was this important to the adventure or are they just mugging people out behind the tavern to get extra coin you know (laughs) um that sort of stuff so i don't know if that helps kojo but you know that's pretty much you know, baseline out of the book, but then just kind of wing it, which I think is probably what you should be doing for XP for most things. I mean, nothing's going to be an absolute. You got to figure out the circumstances and you know, inherent weaponry or not that anything may or may not have spell-like abilities. Blah. Well, can so, can I ask you guys? It sounded like Liz, you wanted to kind of maybe penalize or adjust depending on whether it was uh, a good thing to kill the NPC. Uh, like if they were just laying in an alley mugging by innocent bystanders <laughs> for the hell of it. Yeah, yeah, I probably would penalize for that kind of behavior. It's like I'm not going to reward players for, you know, doing asinine things in my games. So we might <laughs> and and if that means they walk away from my table, then well, sorry, but good riddance. Well, but the, I, I I think that's interesting, but just for the sake of argument, I, I take a slightly different tactic. I sort of expect the players to murder Hobo, any NPC I put in front of them. So, I mean, the XPs would be the XPs, but then I would just properly play out the natural results of the actions. Like, okay, here comes the town council now. <laughs> You're going to kill all of them? Okay, you killed all of them. Now the king's sending the army down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe so, but... I don't want to have to spend my precious time running a game going through all of that crap that has no interest to me as a DM. It's like, that's not how I want to spend the next four or five hour game session going through all that. Yeah. It's like, I think I want that's perfectly fair. No one enjoys their game being derailed. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just talking. Well, I'm I mean, I do, of... I do see your point, but you know, if they are willing to take it to that extreme of consequences, 
then I'm stuck running them through all of these consequences. And now I'm not having fun. <laughs> well, that's fair so enough. I'd, I'd, I'd rather just not reward them for it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what about the second part of the question? I have no modules. clue. <laughs> um, How to string together modules that weren't designed to be stringed together instead of using the ones right. that were designed to be strung together? Right. Don't do it. Yeah. I mean, I know TSR tried doing it with B1 through 9 in Search of Adventure, but it was kind of, it was obviously, you know, they're trying to duct tape it all together and try to claim, no, no, it's one big story. No, it isn't. You took nine modules and just kind of crammed them together with a vague, you can do that even better on your own. Well, I mean, I kind of have an answer, but it's a lot of work. It's just what I do. I mean, if there's an adventure, Kojo, that you really like and you want to run it next and it doesn't fit as a sequel to the adventure you just ran, dig into it and change it around because I do that all the time. I'm like, oh, this Michael mm -hmm. Curtis Dungeon Crawl Classics adventure is great, but I'm running Mutant Crawl Classics. Well, okay, let's reskin it. And then I spend you know a week reskinning it. Yeah, it is a little extra work, but... You know, you can shoehorn it in most anywhere. And the beauty of fantasy is that you can also always have some weird accident or strange thing happen. It's like, yes, your last adventure was in the jungle, but you tried to mug a, mug a guy outside the tavern for a little extra cash, and it turned out he was a 20th-level wizard, and he cast you into the desert. So now you're playing... You know, Desert of Desolation, and, you know, it's... Oh, wait, I got this. That igloo you just crawled in in the winter ice forest, it was <laughs> it was a TARDIS, and when you exit it, you're in the jungle now. Yeah, but that igloo you were making fun of in the last adventure? <laughs> yeah. Well, now, <laughs> now you're in the desert. That's no cave, that's a portal. <laughs> it's a space station. No way, it's too igloo-y to be a space station. Anyway... Hope that helps, Kojo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's listen to the other one. All right. Hi, Saber Guy gals and guy, or guys and gal. I got a question about um, Dungeon Crawl Classics, the core rules, and how do you get a core rule book? I try to find it online. It seems that they're all sold out. But then again, I'm kind of dim. Also, the Mutant Crawl Classics, I can't seem to find that anywhere as well. So when you get a chance, uh, if you can answer this on the air, that would be great. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, Liz, That's you want... Liz, you want you, this, this sounds like Liz, a you wanna, question. Liz, you want to take this one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I understand... Classics will be out... Soon. Okay. Well, if you'll uh, let me taco away from basic D&D for momentarily. Uh, <laughs> I think you kind of have to. <laughs> uh, the uh, DCC uh, third printing book is out of print, which is what this uh, caller has discovered. The fourth printing is in process. There was a big Kickstarter months ago for it, and it will be uh, in store soon. But because of, you know, you have to have them printed in China and stuff, uh, I think they're doing a soft cover version of it that's going to go up live on the website any day. And the PDF, uh, which is a good deal, is uh, you can get it drive through RPG. So you can still get your hands on, on the rules uh, outside of eBay or something. Um, Mutant Crawl Classics, the Kickstarter hasn't even happened. So all I'm allowed to, all I'm allowed to officially say is it's coming soon. Yeah. 
Actually, you know, all, all I can unofficially say is it's coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> but soon. You can also check uh, used game dealers like Noble Knight Games. They may have copies of prior editions of uh, DCC, some of the prior print ones. That's an excellent suggestion. Because that's usually my go-to when I want something. Yeah, it's not what I do. So I have for it. And, and they have great service. They're always willing to take ranty phone calls when they've screwed something up, and they'll always make it good. So, Aaron Leader is kind of the king of the world that way. He is. He's pretty awesome. And we're not even getting money from Noble Knight. So just make sure that's clear. All right. Well, then, do we have any announcements before we want to take a break and get on to the interview? Yes, I'm uh, having a GoFundMe so that I can get a plane ticket to go to Texas. No, I'll, I'll, cut, <laughs> I'll cut that out. <laughs> no, no announcements. No, no announcements. announcements. Nothing. Nothing. I have nothing to announce. Okay. Well, I guess I will. Nah, I will save that for next episode. Oh, and come on! And we'll take a break and see you before the interview. No, you'll tell me off air, though, right? It's nothing. I just did that. Make everybody <laughs> freak out. Creep. Yes. Yes, well, I am. Creep, 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 creep. <laughs> yep. Jim's, that is me. Jim's OCD successfully triggered. Thank you. <laughs> it's my birthday. I get to. It is no longer your birthday. It's almost practically my birthday. <laughs> Stay tuned for Land of the Lost, following Dungeons and Dragons. Don't touch that! Navigate the maze. Escape the dungeons. Slay the dragons. Don't you think that's just a little bit out of our league? And now, back to Dungeons and Dragons. What are you doing? It's game time. I think I play too much. People say it's weird. We should cut back. That's insane. Game, Mrs. Hudson is on. Game on! Game on! Game on! Here we are with Chris Holmes, the son of J. Eric Holmes, the author and editor of the Dungeons & Dragons basic set, along with a plethora of other works. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome. And before we get started, I understand you're going to be at North Texas RPG Con this year. Yeah, this will be my fourth year, I think. And I'll be on a panel with... Uh, Alan Grohe and Zach Taylor, and we'll be talking about Dad's writings and mm -hmm. uh, promoting the upcoming uh, collection, Tales of Peril, which okay. is supposed to come out in June or July, I hope. We hope. <laughs> so you've been, man, we've missed you all these times. That's, that sucks. You couldn't be persuaded to wear a Holmes Basic box set around your neck or anything, so we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> Big medallion. Hey, there I'm are t-shirts. 
I'm an old guy with bad posture and a goatee, so you can't miss me. <laughs> I don't know. At North Texas, that doesn't exactly narrow it down. But... <laughs> There's a down Not to much. only 350 people. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am notoriously bad about being able to get up early in the mornings during convention weekends, but mm -hmm. I am going to do it for your panel. <laughs> I will not sign up for a 9 a.m. game, but I am going to be at your 9 a.m. panel. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I love, the way, I love the way you say Holmes. I love your accent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you, you you've got two Texans and a boy who grew up in Kentucky. That's, that all right. That ain't funny, is it, sis? <laughs> oh, boy, I'm going to get crucified now in our Texas, but... Anyway, <clears throat> to get started, I'll freely admit there we've got some questions that you may not know the answers up for, but we'll just say I have no recollection of that at this time, Senator, and we'll just move on. I'll look so, the answers up and tell you later. <laughs> well, that could work too, or this could be like a prequel to the uh, to the seminar, so you can actually give the the real answers at the seminar. So that'll give people inspiration to actually come and attend and stuff is there a fee by the way to that seminar oh god no no fee no. okay and i'm sure zach or alan will know the answers to all these questions if i don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah grows kind of like an encyclopedia when it comes to to old dnd isn't he they both are uh -huh. amazing <laughs> okay well to begin at the beginning uh do you know how your dad got introduced to D&D? How did he hear about it? That one I do know. That was my <laughs> older brother who uh, was in junior high school uh, and uh, was playing with some uh, people from an alternative high school. And he, uh, he wasn't that into it, but he knew that dad and I would be very into it. So he arranged for us to be uh, indoctrinated. Oh, well, actually, yeah. That's okay. Cool. With the uh, brown books. Oh, I'm sorry. No, we were uh, we were uh, shown how to play with the horrible uh, warlock uh, Caltech rules. So. Uh, oh, I've heard some horror stories about them. I, I have a copy of those. They're actually kind of interesting. I'd like to <laughs> oh, see those. Interesting, and we didn't know any better. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were told that the that it was hard to learn how to play with just the brown book. So, uh, but Dad promptly went after the first game. Dad went out to Arrow Hobbies and promptly bought everything and tried to figure out how to uh, play it on his own and had some difficulty. Yeah, and that's what inspired him to want to write a beginner's guide. Because yeah, much as I love the brown book, it needs it. <laughs> He had to buy chainmail as well, and uh, not being a war gamer, that was that was kind of difficult to as win. So anyway, yeah. he ended up. Somebody needs to write a beginning a beginning player's book, and uh, I think maybe I should write it. So I'm going to write a letter to TSR Hobbies, and that's what he did. And they took him up. And on I told him, I told him that it was a good idea, but I didn't think there'd be any market for it because I thought. All the nerds in the in America were already playing Dungeons and Dragons. It seemed like there weren't <laughs> that many of us. So I famously predicted that the basic set wouldn't sell very well. 
Just to uh, help our younger viewers understand the world that this took place in, uh, Both of them. you know, that meant your dad typed or wrote something on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope with a stamp, mailed it off, and didn't know if he'd ever hear back again. Well, no, I think he typed a letter, yeah. And they said they were interested. They called him back. Oh, that's cool. He actually got called. They told him they were thinking about doing something like that, but they didn't have the time and they didn't have any money. So if he didn't mind doing it for free, he could go right ahead and they could print it. <laughs> That's how they get everybody in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened. Okay, well, um, and of course his original rewrite wasn't just for levels one to three, right? He originally wrote it kind of for a bigger range of people. I, I'm not sure. I think he may have, it may have been his idea to limit it, uh, or it may have been theirs. I don't know. Uh, I don't know for sure. Oh, but, okay. Uh, he, because he was uh, thinking of inter as an introduction to the game, he may have limited. Uh, I know we talked about which monsters to include, and he didn't want to include any higher level monsters, but then he decided he should put a dragon in because he <laughs> called it dragon. Dungeons and Dragons. Right, yeah. right. So, he, yeah, he was trying to limit it somewhat to lower levels, I think. And I, I believe that was his idea, but we'll never really know because I can't recall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's not too personal, just to give us a sense of the place and time when this was all happening, how old would you have been about this time? Yeah, I was, uh, uh, I was probably uh, 15, and my brother was... Uh, 17 and uh that was about then and uh luckily we were living uh near aero hobbies and uh living near enough to dad that we could go uh over to his house every weekend and play dungeons and dragons what was it like playing with him in his campaign world i mean well i know you probably could guess he was really easy <laughs> <laughs> that Psychology Today article he wrote sort of tips that off. He, he seemed like he was hesitant to just go ahead and kill a player character. Yeah, we did. We did have a couple of deaths, but they they never seemed to uh, be without some sort of reprieve or magic uh, wishing ring or whatnot. But uh, he really put the fear into us in the first game because he put a purple worm in his first level dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wait, you can't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of an attention getter for the teenagers. <laughs> we learned how, that sometimes you run away. Yeah. The thing yeah. that I liked, uh, I loved about his game uh, was uh, it was very visual. He always had a figure of some kind for everything. And uh, he was always open to the weird ideas you had and, and seeing if he could make them uh, into a die roll or not. He never said, that's a dumb idea, or you can't do that. He always tried to find a way to, uh, to make it work if he could. Well, that's cool. Oh, it was very cool. So uh, he rolled a lot of the dice for the monsters right out there where we could see them. Mm -hmm. There was very little secrecy in his game. So he didn't fudge rolls much because it was right out there. I guess not, no. Yeah. I, I love it. That's a that, that, that's a trick I just started using in the past couple of years. Roll it out in front where everybody can see it. Still, it's very interesting. 
um, in fantasy role-playing games, when he's giving the example of how a game session would go, in his example, the DM is rolling dice behind his screen. But, you know, obviously that wasn't something that he personally did. So that's kind of interesting to know. Yeah, it's almost as if he's trying to uh, appeal to TSR when, when he wrote that description, <laughs> rather than be honest. Yeah. Uh, did he use miniatures in play much? You mentioned the figures, so... Or did, were they oh, just yeah. as... Oh, he, yeah, he bought, he bought hundreds of miniatures, and he, he would try to paint enough of the monsters for each game, but uh, when he died, he still had miniatures he hadn't taken out of the box yet. I think uh, that probably is going to apply to all of us in one way or the other. (laughs) I was just saying, you just described my bedroom closet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, too many toys. Yeah. But uh, it it was very hard for me to play a game uh, later when I didn't have all the miniatures. I felt like I wasn't a very good dungeon master (laughs) because I didn't have enough stuff to show off. Well, I imagine the games, though, must have been wonderful because I, I know enough about your dad to know that he was uh, deeply into the Appendix N literature, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. He was lucky yeah. enough to meet Edgar Rice Burroughs when he was a boy. Ooh. And yeah, didn't he, he write a, some uh, Burroughsian novels on his own? <laughs> he wrote two, one of which was published, Mahars of Pellucidar. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then he wrote Red Axe of Pellucidar, but the uh, the person in charge of the Burroughs estate, the, the family member, switched uh, over time in some obscure, arcane way. And the new uh, the new master of allowing books to be printed didn't let Red Axe of Pellucidar be published. Mike, 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 Mike. Permission to go off into Edgar Rice Burroughs land for a short time before we get back to D and D. Go for it. I'm Taco. sorry, the ERB fan in me can't can't take it. So, um, I, the the first Pellucidar novel that your dad wrote, the hero of that was named Christopher West, and I did a little research and came up with the uh, idea that uh, his first Pellucidar pastiche novel evolved out of bedtime stories he was telling you when you were going to bed at night. Is that right? Well, he read me the the entire uh, Burroughs, uh, the whole Pellucidar series as as bedtime reading, I suppose you could say. And my brother, Jeff. Uh, and then so, so I'm, it, I'm kind of imagining he gets to book six and there aren't any more and you still want more. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably true. So coolest dad ever. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. He also as he also asked me if there was anything I wanted him to put into that novel. And I said, yes, put a giant octopus into it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, if you read it, you realize there's no r- real rational reason for a giant octopus to be in the sewers of the Mars. <laughs> so it's your it fault it's... that that giant octopus is at the end of the sample dungeon in the in the Holmes <laughs> basic book. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> and it also, that octopus made it onto the cover of Mahars of Pellucidar. The Boris Vallejo painting, oh. which we had an opportunity to buy, but uh, Dad couldn't afford to buy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those art pieces can be expensive, especially Vallejo, I would think. Well, one more ERB question, and then and then I'll shut up, Mike. Um, I also uh, 
read that your there's an unpublished novel that your dad started that he was co-authoring with Edgar Rice Burroughs' son, John Coleman Burroughs, who I'm a huge fan of his art from the 40s, while your dad was treating him for Parkinson's disease as his, you know, and his job as a neurologist and an MD. That is pretty much the case, yes. But the, the novel is finished, but it's unpublished. And uh, what I need is an angel who wants to deal with the Burroughs family. <laughs> it's not just the novel that complicates the matter. Uh, John Coleman, even though he didn't finish his version of the story, he did two, three paintings at least, uh, illustrating the story, Danton Doring. And um, those would have to be included, I think, in the book. So it's going to be a complicated uh, mess. <laughs> but it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing to someday uh, be released, I hope. Fingers crossed. All, All right, sp- should we talk about Dungeons and Dragons again? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm 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 pulling, I'm I'm pulling back from the ARB. Okay, you, you've got your. Well, I mean, Burroughs is part of the appendix and D and D fiction, so I think it's certainly appropriate to discuss at least for a while. Well, but um, s- speaking of characters who may or may not be based on you, um, <laughs> Boinger the Halfling in Maze of Peril. And um, Zareth the Dark Elf. Um, yes. My were, first were they, so they were both your characters. Yep, I got them both. Uh, they're either the first two or one of the first three characters. I was encouraged to, to roll up three characters when we first uh, were shown how to play because they thought the mortality rate would be high in the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, Boinger and Zareth managed to survive many games and I... Uh, well, I would just by Dad's treatment of them. <laughs> well, I would just like to salute you for choosing the first dark elf in D and D history, and he wasn't an emo wreck. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I tried to play him with no emotions at all. Feels <laughs> to me as a teenager for some reason. <laughs> Well, yeah, I kept telling, you know, whenever I tell people at Maze of Peril, and they say, and then, of course, there's a dark elf in there, Zareth. He goes, oh, a dark elf. And I'm like, yeah, but before you go further, he is not sitting around crying in his beer about his evil state. And if only people understood him. No, he's sitting in the back reading a scroll or something. You know, he, he's not going to go there. And it's so nice. <laughs> I didn't know this. There is a subgenre of emo elves. <laughs> oh, there is. Dra- uh, R. A. S- uh, the author R.A. Salvatore. Salvatore? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Anyway, he introduced Drizzt the Dark Elf, and he introduced him in the 90s, and he was all about... He was kind of like out Elricking Elric, if you've read any of the Elric self-obsessed... Yeah, Elric has some issues. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's even worse, and... I don't. I think he was interesting when he was first introduced, but they quickly ran it into the ground with eight thousand different books about him, and you know, just yes, he's still. It's been eight hundred years. You're still whining about your your dual nature. Get over it. <laughs> but maybe but, that's just me. Yeah. But see, this is what fascinates me about some of the things your father wrote, because your father, with his uh, psychology background, well understood the difference between a player's ego and the player character's alter ego and how those two would uh, interact and sometimes overlap like a Venn diagram, not completely, but in parts. I'm fascinated by the stuff your dad wrote along those lines. Yeah, but, uh, 
Thank you. I love the Venn diagram uh, example. <laughs> it wasn't very, uh, yeah. He didn't make any great discoveries through playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I think he, maybe he articulated just the same stuff that uh, Tim Kask uh, mentioned at one time. The differences and the similarities, which make the game so fascinating. But what was important was he was articulating at a very early stage in a hobby when in the mass market media there's, you know, people saying ridiculous things like this leads to devil worship and witchcraft. Yeah, or or psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. What did your father think about that whole satanic panic? <laughs> well, he did get, he did get uh, interviewed. Uh, there's an article in the L.A. Times that quoted him. And then a, a few uh, religious uh, television station or radio station tried to interview him, but but decided not to. <laughs> so he uh, wasn't saying the right things, huh? <laughs> right. No. <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, yeah he was he was a voice for sanity. I hope <laughs> we'll remember that. Well, I certainly enjoyed his confessions of a dungeon master article um, in Psychology Today, and though I didn't read it until well after because at the time it came out I was like 12, 13 but um, unfortunately yeah, it's... I wish I hope someday to meet a teenage someone who was a teenager at the time that article came out so that they could show it to their parents but I don't know if that ever happened well I was 19 in 1980 but uh, my parents were just glad I was sitting at the kitchen table rolling dice instead of out tearing up the streets they didn't care good parents yeah, you'd think about, you know, all these parents worried about playing D&D. You'd think they'd be more worried about doing drugs and joining gangs and, you know, that sort of thing. But no, summoning demons. Well, it was new and, you know, it was the unknown, and we all fear the unknown, right? Oh, yeah. Well, one of the my favorite stories is, as a history professor that I've come across is talk about you know, toys are new things that are going that terrify people. When the teddy bear first came out in 1906, <laughs> churches were were very upset about it because they were afraid that its baby-like um, features would cause women to stop having children because they could <laughs> just get a teddy bear. Yeah, I'm not making that up. It's real. And I was like, Wow, that just proves everything comes new comes out. Somebody thinks it's evil. Yeah, I've heard that rock and roll was evil, but never teddy bears. Yep, teddy bears. It, it's <laughs> and in the nineteenth century, women shouldn't read novels because women couldn't dis and children shouldn't read novels because women and children can't tell reality from fiction. So, yeah, so novels. Had, yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> that's not true, is it, Liz? You can tell the difference, right? <laughs> Can I? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. So your dad, your dad wrote a lot for alarms and excursions too, right? Yeah, he he. Uh, I guess he began Boinger and Zero stories, uh, writing for alarms and excursions, and uh, I did some drawings for those stories. But I still couldn't believe he was paying to Xerox his own work, and <laughs> to me it seemed so silly. <laughs> but. Uh, it, it's turned out, I guess, later on that, that Alarms and Excursions is a great resource for uh, people like John Peterson and and those who want to know what things were like back then. And expensive to get back issues of. That's ironic. ironic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's bizarre, but... Uh, 
Well, you'll be you'll be glad to know that uh, the alarms and excursion stories and the confessions of a dungeon master article are going to be included in Tales of Peril. Good. That was my next question. Yes. Read the Dragon Magazine short stories, and I've got mazes, Maze of Peril, but I have never read the Alarms and Excursions ones. That's awesome. How soon will that be out? Uh, June or July, knock on wood, Whew. from Black Blade Publishing. And well, uh, there's also a, re- a rejected Boinger and Zera story ooh. you can read. Rejected oh. by whether It should have been rejected or not. <laughs> who rejected it? Uh, not Tim Cask, another editor. Okay, so I, name I do not remember. Dragon Magazine, though. Yes, yes, and it may be because it was a collaboration between myself and my father. It it, it may not have been very good, or racism may have been involved. So you decide. Uh oh. Okay. Well, well um, called Witch Doctor. Ooh. Oh, Witch Doctor. Witch Doctors <laughs> are all over the place. Um, it's a it's a pulp staple. I mean, the the shaman or witch doctor of the savage tribe. I mean, gotta have that. I decided uh, I wanted to play a druid character, and I couldn't roll one up because my charisma was too low. So I decided to create a character class to fit the dice that I'd rolled, and that's why I created a witch doctor. I okay. love that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so so did he make you roll and? And the uh, numbers went where you rolled them, or you could put them where you want. Or did you? Oh have no, I never knew. We, we would consider that cheating. <laughs> That's old school. <laughs> and three dice. Three dice. Come on, Mike. Three d six in order, the way Crom, <laughs> Crom intended. <laughs> because Crom cares little for your whining about how you don't have a high enough intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I believe Dad would let you uh, abandon a character as hopeless. Okay. But uh, you had to you had to roll them as you saw them and write it down. None of that newfangled roll four die, choose top three, put them where you want them. Crap. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, of not hearing about it, I noticed that after eighty one or so, uh, at least in the gaming industry, it seems like. Uh, Dr. Holmes's work tends to seems to have disappeared. Did he just decide he got tired of photocopying his own work or <laughs> uh, doing stuff for free? Uh, well, Maze of Peril, uh, he didn't uh, he didn't get interest. Whichever publisher he was trying to sell it to wasn't interested in it, uh, or they were afraid of the Tolkien estate, or they were afraid of TSR. I'm not sure which. But I think that kind of uh, dampened his enthusiasm. And then he got hired to uh, write a, a Conan pastiche. And then he wrote that, and it also wasn't published. But uh, he did get some money for that, thanks to El Sprague de Camp. Well, that's and, cool. Uh, I think we, be- we started to think maybe the Dungeon Dragon's wagon was uh, slowing down. or mm-hmm. It was all going to be uh, video games and card games. Well... That is true. If you're wanting money in the gaming industry, it's video games. That's for sure. Um, 
Well, see if this as makes a, sense, because see if this wasn't part of it. I, I pose this as a question. The, those of us that started in the 70s grew up in the hobby when it was a very much do-it-yourself sort of hobby and game, because there weren't modules. You had to create your own worlds. I know I know from reading that your dad was one of those guys he'd rather create his own than go buy uh, a setting, even though there weren't yeah. any in the 70s. And we struggle <laughs> with that sometimes on this show, because we have uh, younger audience members who came into the hobby in the 80s, and uh, presumably even in the 90s, when it was splat books and gazetteers every way. And I'm not banging on those per se. I just have difficulty with them because of the time I I grew up in the hobby. You think maybe that was part of what your dad uh, reacted to as he saw, you know, the mass uh, no, of books coming out. I know what you're talking about. And we were sort of, um, we weren't sure what to make of the modules, but um, I think if they, if TSR had asked him to write a module, he probably would have done it, but um, they didn't. Uh, I think they kind of distanced themselves a little from him and maybe they were, too involved in Saturday morning cartoons and movie scripts and, and, and you know, uh, lawsuits with Dave Arnson. Who knows? I think he kind of got forgotten in, in a way. Well, I know Gygax, when he went out to California, kind of was out of the mainstream working of the, of the company, and that was mostly mm-hmm. the Blooms. I'm not trying to exonerate Gygax or not. It, I'm just saying that if he worked, say, mostly with Gary – I've heard, you know, anecdotal stories that basically when he went off to California, the Blooms basically wanted to talk to anybody that never talked to him, you know? That sounds that sounds like what I've heard from uh, Jim Ward, yeah. Yeah, so it could have been a matter of, well, we don't know this guy, but Gary does, but that's good enough for us to not talk to him. <laughs> well, I mean, taking the personalities out of it, that happens in entertainment all the time. You know, your, oh, yeah. your, your guy at the studio moves on to another studio, and suddenly all your projects are dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's hardly unique to the gaming industry, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, when did Maze of Apparel come out? It was, what, 83, well, 84? Yeah, it it seemed like it came out too late. Yeah, it, uh, uh, it certainly didn't get the uh, to be the first uh, novel since Quag Keep came out ahead of it. It's more D and D though. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I've read some very nice reviews of it online. That yeah, my copy it's, has that forty year old book smell, so I'm gonna guess <laughs> something like that. Ah, you're a connoisseur. <laughs> well, it wasn't until the internet that I even found out it existed, because all through the 80s, I'd never heard of it. And it was only, you know, 10, 15 years ago that I heard that it, you know, he made, he did a novel? Really? And I had quick, to... Let's buy it! <laughs> buy it! Quick! Yes. Yeah, there probably aren't many copies left. So, Tales from the Peril is going to have the original Maze of Peril story in it, along with all the other goodies yes it will tales of peril will have that but it will have a couple new illustrations as well okay well that's something i want to talk about because obviously the conversation is naturally focusing on your father but you uh, from uh, from your teenage years uh, presumably onward were an artist and did illustrations that went along with your dad's articles to alarms and excursions and uh do you still do art I, I teach art, yes, and uh, I still do art. I never made it as an illustrator. Um, I was a little uh, intimidated by how good the art was in the player's handbook, uh, among other things that happened to me. 
but I also uh, I fell into the world of uh, theater uh, at first acting and then set design and painting scenery. Mm. Well, I, I I love the art of yours that I've seen. I'm thinking of uh, a piece that uh, is uh, it, it's very uh, Errol in the Errol Otis Stefan Pog school uh, of illustration, uh, and it's a it looks like an a Star Trek painting. There's an Orion slave girl dancing, and there's some Star Trek references in the back. Oh yeah, <laughs> like a Magatu head is mounted like a stuffed animal head on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I painted that for my wife for her birthday. <laughs> well, I love that painting. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'll paint you one if you ever become a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm working on it, but uh, this doesn't look like your lucky day so far. <laughs> but we're I in the gaming industry. Well. <laughs> yeah, I write in the gaming industry, so that's not going to happen anytime soon. Hundreds of dollars a year in the lucrative field of game design. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Web mm-hmm. comic. Yeah, that's where the money is. What? Writing in the gaming industry when you're not working for free, it's like, ah, score! <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a dollar. Okay. <laughs> Victory! <laughs> when I grump about 200 odd bucks for a module, I'll, I'll shut up now when I hear that Dr. Holmes had to photocopy his own stuff for alarms and excursions. Although I guess it was an APA, and that was... Really, kind of how Appas worked, right? That's what it. That was how it worked. Yeah. Back in the day, yeah. So. yeah. I was part of an Appa zine for a while. It was a general one, but yeah, there were like X number of people who contributed, and so we each had to photocopy that many copies of our contributions, so that you know, at the end of the month, everybody got. You know, a full copy of the Apazine. Wait, I've got this, Liz. It was Blake Seven, wasn't it? Uh, no, it was not. Um, oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, a it was reasonable guess, though. Yeah. Um, actually, the the Apazine was called DAPA, Dallas area Appa, and there were maybe only eight or nine people who were a part of it. So it was a very, very limited print run. I only had to do like nine copies of everything, which was good. But <laughs> Highly yeah, collectible. It, indeed, yes. <laughs> limited print run. Yeah, after you become a millionaire, Liz, At- then, you know, it'll be demand. Your art will be in demand. <laughs> it's possible that the uh, photocopying of the alarms and excursion stuff was stolen from the USC Medical School uh, you know, zero area. Surely not. <laughs> oh, this, this whole conversation just makes me so warm and fuzzy because I can remember being 18 years old and what a big deal it was to take a module to my friend's office and sneak photocopies. I mean, somebody that was born after 1980 can't even understand that. There were copy machines weren't everywhere. Hey, uh, when um, Warhammer... 40,000 came out, I went with my friend Ben to his dad's office. He was a doctor, and we photocopied the whole hardback just so I'd have a copy when I went back home. I mean, TSR's out of business, and there's a statute of limitations on that kind of crime, right? Oh, yeah. I I can admit to it now. (laughs) Warning, I am not an actual lawyer. (laughs) Another good reason to keep your day job is if it has free photocopying access. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. 
fortunately, Liz is uh, in, in a job where that's sort of the case, so that, that kind of works. <laughs> but of um, course, I have never, ever used the copiers at work for my own personal gain. No, that would exactly. be Exactly. That, that yes. would be wrong, and I have never done that. Ever. I believe you. <laughs> good, good. Good, good. Let's keep that going. <laughs> All right. Well, um, my last question would be, is uh, Tales of Peril going to be put out in a Kindle edition? I do not know. I know okay. what a Kindle is. So, so will there be – well, I'll just bug uh, John and, and Alan when I see them at the con about it. So, All yeah, right. Surely they'll have a – you just need you need a version that your reader can handle, right? Right, right. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't read it. So you're going to want to get a paper version for me to sign and draw a monster on for you. Oh, sure, sure. But I don't want to then split the spine scanning it into the computer so I can read it. So, um, <laughs> so I don't want to screw the copy up. That would be it, it's going to be a limited edition. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, you can have the e copy, and I will have the physical copy. book copy because <laughs> you're a luddite yes uh, i gotta teach you how to scan better mike that sounds to me like you needed two free copies <laughs> <laughs> one to scan oh, at least all right well thanks very much for joining us for the show chris and we look forward to actually meeting you this time at north texas that'd be great can yeah, i talk this? about bird sharks for five minutes <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying to get to the wear shark because uh, that was in alarms and excursions too, right? Yes, I just wanted. I I, uh, I didn't know that uh, the Monster Manual two included wear sharks and that they had a life outside of uh, that alarms and excursion story. But uh, I just wanted to set the record straight and that Dad invented wear sharks. He stole them from the Hawaiians and. Uh, he did the. He played War Sharks first, and I was the first one to be killed by War Shark. All right. In the early yeah, they, 70s. Were, they were in Mazes and Peril, Mazes of Peril, wasn't it? Weren't they? Yeah, that, that adventure uh, in Mazes of Peril is is almost uh, a write-up of the actual D and D game. Ooh, did it include the flesh golem getting turned into a stone golem? I believe we did have a a stone golem. I don't know if we we turned him. I think he may have uh, he may have added that. Okay, okay. Because I, I I read that whole book, and the first thing I told Liz was that this reads like a game. I think this really happened. <laughs> Mike, may I? I, I, could, I could see that happening too. It's like okay, we'll do you know flesh to stone. Great. Now you've upgraded it to a stone golem. Thank you. <laughs> Mike, I'd like uh, clearance from the head office to use the power of the podcast for a moment. Okay. In the cause of the wear shark. Um, I know that uh, amongst our listeners, there must be Wikipedia editors. So here's here's the call. Saver, 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 die, saver, die, saver, die, die listeners who are Wikipedia editors to get into the wear shock. Wear shark entry in Wikipedia and get this attribution in there correctly. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, properly cited, yeah, no. properly cited, so it doesn't get bounced. Obey the rules, but let's get it in there. <laughs> Indeed, and you get five hundred yeah. experience points. <laughs> and I'll draw you a wear shark. <laughs> there you go. When you become a millionaire, <laughs> no, I'll draw I'll you. <laughs> it, it would be very good. Oh, okay. <laughs> very quick wear shark. 
Right. right. I don't know if I can draw a cobalt, but I can draw a were shark. Ooh, a cobalt <laughs> were shark. <laughs> <laughs> a cobalt who was turned into a were shark. <laughs> so, Chris, awesome. if you if you did draw a cobalt puppy face or no puppy face? Uh, I think puppy face. I like puppies. Yes. Oh, passed the test. Well done, sir. I know. I can also uh, weigh in on uh, Marvel Comics and uh, several other things that Dad was a big fan of. So Fantastic Four was his favorite comic. Oh, mine too! <laughs> and uh, Tom Baker was his favorite Doctor Who. Yes! Wow. Yes, 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 yes. And he and loved Cat. Tom Baker was the first Doctor I saw. Me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And as I much as I one. like some of the new ones, Baker's always going to be the the doctor. God, you're making me wish I'd met your dad now, because it doesn't look like I'm going to live long enough to see a decent Fantastic Four movie either. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, what about the Corman one from the early 90s? <sighs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> I mean, it it was, okay. I yeah, Well, how, how sad is it that that's the best movie thing so far? <laughs> I was about to say, I think the Corman movie was better than the last Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> yeah, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle thing that was in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so, so this, this then is probably why your dad and Tim Cass got along well, because Tim was all into Doctor Strange comics and stuff. I don't know if they ever knew that about each other. <laughs> I drugged Tim no. to see Ant-Man. Oh, good for you! What do you think? Oh, he he loved it till he went to the microverse, and then and then he then then well, he's like he's like we're we're both like he's like I'm not sure what I just watched. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I've gone to the microverse, and that's not how it looks at all. <laughs> <laughs> like going to see a historical movie with me, right, Liz? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why is that well, man using a Bildegis arm? They weren't even around then. <laughs> quiet, you. Quiet, you. Fine, fine. All right. Well, we'll let you go, Chris. And all right. I'll... I enjoyed. Yeah, appreciate talking to you. And Thank like you said, so much. We'll have to actually. We no we've scheduled this time. We're not going to be running day after day after day from game to game. So maybe we can actually just hang out and talk. That would be cool. I think I'll be running from game to game, though. Ah, now it's your turn. Crap. Well, you have to be at the seminar, so we can talk to you there at least. Yeah, I think I will. <laughs> They're going to make me read. All right. That. Well, ooh, I wonder if we can record that. Probably not. I'm All sure right. there's going to be video streaming going on for that. Probably. I think so. I'm sure that's a Doug Ray question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, and we look forward to talking to you. Yeah, see you in Texas soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And here we are once again, end of another show, the beginning of another dusty road heading out to infinity, or at least to the mazes of peril. Who knows? And how are we heading down that dusty road this time? Jim. Did you ever read the Sandman comics? The the edgy 
late 80s, early 90s ones, or yeah, before that? Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman? No. I'm, I'm getting lost in the maze of peril going down the dusty road until I get to the Sandman's library, in which are all the books that were never published. And I'm heading straight to the John Eric's home section so I can read all these books that haven't been published. Oh, yeah. Tell me those stories when you, when you find them. <laughs> I don't want to wait. Liz? I am heading down the dusty road with Boinger and Zareth. <laughs> Can't be in better company. I know, especially, right? Especially if you don't want to hear whining. It's the non-emo <laughs> party. Yes. <laughs> Although, and be careful I of that hobbit. Boing- I was going to say, I hear Boinger is something of a ladies' man. So. Yeah, <laughs> kind of a dog. Yeah. Well, I am heading down the dusty road. I'm running, actually, because despite all logic, I'm being chased by a were-shark. <laughs> a were-land cobalt shark, which is really not fun, let me tell you. Stat it out next episode. I'm totally putting the Jaws theme underneath that when I edit this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you at 123, which will be the last episode before the con. <sighs> Unless something comes up and we don't record, but anyway. <laughs> Gotta put in that plug there, that that disclaimer. Yeah. You can't record before the con, so. He's he's catching on. Yep. <laughs> we'll record unless we don't. Unless we don't. That's right. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Free arc. And we're out. This is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saber Night theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.Bandcamp.com. The Wearshark was created by J.R. Combs. This podcast was not licensed by the Edgar Burroughs Estate. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. It's my birthday. I get to. It is no longer your birthday. It's almost practically my birthday. Okay. (coughs) By the time this airs, it might be your next birthday. Who knows? (laughs) We shall see. All right. Uh, We'll do the closer, and then we're out. Okay? God, this is so sophisticated, recording out of order like this. I feel like I'm in a Quentin Tarantino (laughs) movie.